I want to uh, I want to read a passage of scripture, which is one of uh, my favorites and probably one of yours as well. I'm not going to read all of the psalm. I'm going to read portions, selected verses from Psalm 34. Before I do, I have a quote from Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker was an Episcopal pastor, priest, minister in New York and in Pittsburgh, a remarkable man, in many ways the man primarily responsible for the establishment of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sam Shoemaker. He said this, almost everyone has a problem, is a problem, or lives with a problem. And the one you're living with may be inside of you or me. But Jesus has come, and the promises of God apply to the problems of life. Whether we have it, whether we're it, whether it has us, the promises of God are to solve problems. You helped last week in a marvelous and generous way when I asked rather spontaneously at the end of the service uh, to give just a loose offering in addition to what you were giving to buy Bibles for the Juvenile Detention Center here in San Antonio. Uh, you gave $892. That's marvelous. More has been given since, close to $1,000 now. All of that will be used to provide Bibles for those young people in the Juvenile Detention Center save their soul and their life. So with this gift goes our prayers that God will use it. So I want you to pray that the Lord will use the gift given to reach out to those young people. Also, our XYZ folks have the money necessary to buy a bus, but we've got insurance problems, legal problems, nobody's fault. It's just the complication of the world in which we live. And those things need to be ironed out, and they need that bus, because like that fellow that George Grimes tells us about in Memphis, they're out ministering and singing and sharing, and that bus will be a help if they're doing that. So I want you to make that a matter of prayer also. That's one of these problems that we have that God will help us solve. May we stand now for the reading of God's Word. <laughs> psalm 34, selected scripture from that psalm. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord redeems his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. No one, no one will be condemned. The New Testament tells us even if your heart condemns you, God is greater 
than your heart. And may God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Dear Lord, you know the troubles, the problems, the difficulties, questions, doubts, fears, whatever it is. It's a part of our thinking here this morning. We pray that we will be filled with your presence and your spirit, that we will receive illumination for dealing with the problems and difficulties, and that in addition to illumination, we will receive inspiration through the presence of your spirit to accomplish that which you want us to accomplish and to be that which you want us to be in this world. We pray you'll use the Bibles at the Juvenile Detention Center and the bus and this furniture and all that we do here to be utilized by your Spirit to bring your Word to hearts and homes and lives. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. I woke up unusually early this morning and uh, had time to read part of the paper, at least I read part of the good news, or read the funnies. And uh, how many of you got to read the, the uh, Express News funnies this morning? I see your hand. How many of you are kudzu fans? May I see your hand? Oh, well, you need to be. Here's this preacher with that hat. That funny. I need one of these hats, Tommy. I think I'd help me. Old kudzu's standing up there preaching. He's got this pulpit, and he's standing there. And he looks out at the congregation and he says, Brothers and sisters, my sermon today is on, next frame, when bad things happen to good people. He stands there. Then he says, Now can we think of any examples of bad things happening to good people? Question. Last frame. A voice from the audience, from the congregation. How can we think of any examples of bad things happening to good people? The answer, your sermons. <laughs> now that, that'll hurt you. That will hurt you deeply. So I'm not going to ask that question. Martha and I had a marvelous experience this past week. We were invited uh, California, and I spoke a couple of times, and Martha participated in a seminar at uh, the Crystal Cathedral. I was pri privileged to speak there twice this past week in a leadership uh, conference attended by over 2,000 people from all across America, over 15 different denominations, uh, over 1,000 churches represented, and a remarkable group of people there. Ken Meadema was there to sing this this marvelous man that we've had here, Tommy, and he's ready to come back, anxious to come back. Most, one of the most creative people I've ever heard. This blind, but he sees things that we don't see. Marvelous music. He play before each and after every message, interpreting it musically in that inimitable way that he does. Of course, Robert Schuler spoke, Bruce Larson, Earl Polk. Earl's a friend of mine and a new friend, senior pastor at the Chapel Hill Harvester Church. In Atlanta, just dedicated their sanctuary of over 7,000 seats. And Colleen Townsend, some of you remember Colleen Townsend, converted in the Billy Graham revival in California, movie starlet, then, uh, then played in some of the early Billy Graham films. Married uh, Lewis Evans, Presbyterian pastor. He was there, pastor at uh, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. 
And both of them uh, spoke. Uh, and uh, Walt Callistad, marvelous young man, pastor, senior pastor, Community Church of Joy in Glendale, Arizona. It's a Lutheran church, a church about this size with uh, remarkable ministries, and he, a very unique individual. So we had a, a great time talking about church and about the Lord and about growth and about uh, fellowship and had seminars. And I led one. Martha participated with uh, Arvella Shuler, Bob Shuler's wife, uh, in one. And so I want to thank you for your prayers for us, those of you who knew we were there. While there, uh, a man, a part of the faculty, was a man named George Hunter. He is one of the most perceptive, intelligent writers on the scene today and has been for a long while analyzing the uh, American and world religious scene. Robert Schuler says that this book should be required reading for everyone who wants to communicate the gospel effectively to unchurched people. Edward Dayton, vice president of World Vision, great Christian ministry, says if a person were to own just one book on this subject, this should be it. It's about churches. It's about us. It's about America. He says that uh, what is happening generally today is that there are not many atheists, a few, and there are not many agnostics. An atheist says, I don't believe in God. An agnostic says, I don't know if I believe in God. He said what we have today are what he calls ignostics, I-G-N-O-S-T-I-C, which says, the person says, I don't know what you're talking about. Agnostic, ignorant of what we are talking about. And then he elaborates on this subject. Let me read you just briefly a little bit of what he said. He quotes Alan Walker. Alan Walker is another world Christian who is a, a, an eminent authority on what's happening in the world among Christians for many, many years. He's preached and observed and studied in 74 countries, including all the secular European countries and all the communist countries except Albania and North Korea. And he says this, and I quote, the Western world is now the toughest mission field on earth. There is now more resistance to the Christian faith in the heart of old Christendom than anywhere else. And what does he mean? Western Europe and America. Meanwhile, he says, the Christian movement has experienced great expansion in Africa, Asia, and Latin America and has demonstrated great tenacity, vitality, and growth in China, Russia, and most other communist nations, even and especially during persecution. Remarkably, and I quote him as I am now, remarkably, more people go to church in Moscow than in London. The land of the Bible. There are more people worshiping Christ today in Moscow than in London. How was the West lost, he asked. And this is the delineation of this book. And how can the West be engaged by the gospel again? Those questions are important because the West is once again a vast mission field. In the United States alone, there are at least 120 million functionally undiscipled people 14 years of age and over. We now know that the Western nations who historically sent missionaries to the rest of the earth are now mission fields themselves once again. 
and they are arduous mission fields. That means difficult. That's where we live. That's what we're on. Our challenge to reach the undiscipled populations of North America, Europe, and Australia will require a sophisticated mission strategy, as, as sophisticated a mission strategy as any mission field in the world today or at any time in history. And the whole world has a stake in what we do here because what we are doing in America is being exported to the rest of the world and what we're ex exporting is becoming increasingly sick. And the whole bit is being exported, including our social problems. And so we must solve this problem for the sake of the whole world. Years ago, Elton Trueblood wrote a book entitled Cut Flower Civilization, in which he said Western culture was like a cut flower. It's still blooming a little bit, but it's severed from its roots. That's happening. And the bloom is fading on a dead stalk in the Western world. I picked up the uh, Los Angeles Times this past Wednesday. Front page story. Front page story. Wednesday, January the 22nd. Headlines here on the front page. Studies show solitude can be a killer. At a time when more Americans than ever are living alone, evidence is mounting that isolation can be bad for one's health for reasons that may range from the absence of a ride to a hospital to the lack of some chemical response to human contact. Human contact. Church contact. Two pages. Second page continues. Page 11. Not time to read it all, of course. Underline brief statement. The link between social relationships and health remains largely unexplained. Researchers speculate that the reason may include mundane, practical failures as well as, get this, as well as more mysterious emotional factors with physical effects. I would substitute only one word. I would substitute spiritual for emotional. Because at the base of our emotional needs, our relational needs, our physical needs, are our spiritual needs, and that has to do with Jesus Christ. And so what do you say to a lonely world? What do you say to a hurting world? A looking world? A hungry world? Some of you in this room may not be very familiar with the Bible, and I'm going to start preaching as though I was preaching in some foreign country. For the next month, we are going to be talking about basic Christianity. Basic Christianity. What is a Christian anyway? We're going to talk about it on Sunday morning and in our classes on Sunday night as I lead here in the sanctuary at 5.30. Uh, what is a Christian anyway? There are people probably in this room and there are millions in America that don't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are millions of people who could not tell you one, the name of one disciple. Millions of people in America who could not quote the Lord's Prayer. When I say John 3.16, they don't know what we're talking about. Well, we need to get to the basics, and we are there, and we're going to address that. 
I want to address it this morning. What do you say? What happened here in the book of John, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Let me say those were eyewitness accounts or first-person accounts from eyewitnesses who were there. Matthew was there. John was there. Mark, in all probability, was there. If not, he got his word from Simon Peter, with whom he traveled and worked. And Luke got the word from the disciples and from other individuals. So those first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not fantasy or fairy tale. They weren't written by someone in an ivory tower, and they didn't float down from heaven on angels' wings. They were written by people 2,000 years ago who saw something and had something happen to them, and they saw something that they all four wrote about. Now, not all four of these writers, called gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not duplicates of each other, but in a few places, they tell us the same event because it made such a profound impact upon them. And that impact that was so profound in one instance is the feeding of the 5,000. I've already alluded to that by these, uh, this furniture that's here on the platform this morning about the furnishings for our uh, children's uh, preschool facilities that are being enlarged. We're talking about the loaves and fishes. Where did that come from? Well, let me tell you how it got there. Here was a crowd of 12, 15,000 people who'd been listening to Jesus. They were captivated by his teaching. He had hope for them. He had love for them. And so they just thronged about him. They were so, they were so captivated by him that they forgot about eating. And it began to get late, late in the day. And they were in a desolate place and they didn't have, they didn't have fast food restaurants all around the Sea of Galilee. Like they, like they do throughout San Antonio and many places. They didn't have any place to get any, anything to eat. And so the crowd started getting hungry. And the disciples said, we've got this great crowd of people here, Jesus. Uh, why don't we send them away? That's what Mark tells us. Why don't we send them away so they can go somewhere else and buy food? And Jesus was astounded at their statement that people would ever be told to go away from his word and from his message. And he said, you do something about it. Now, John tells us something that Mark does not tell us, and it's very, very insightful, and I want you to look at it. It's in the sixth chapter of the book of John. If you're not familiar with the New Testament, it's the fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sixth chapter. Jesus, here we are, 12, 15,000 people. We have about 3,000 people here this morning. Well, about uh, five times this number. And they're getting hungry. Jesus says in the sixth chapter, he says to Philip, Jesus looked up and saw this huge crowd of people. Jesus asked Philip a question. Now pretend you're Philip. I'm pretending I'm Philip. He was from that part of the country. He's from Bethsaida, which is just about two or three miles down the road from where this took place. He said, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Where? Notice the question. Where? Now, Jesus said this, Scripture says, to test Philip. He was trying to help him grow. It's the only reason he ever tests anybody is to try to help them grow. He was testing the whole bunch, really. Because none of them caught on to much of what he was doing, particularly here. It took them a good while, much later in the book of John, before they even began to realize that Jesus, when he was talking about bread, was talking about himself. But, but they, they, it was slow to dawn upon them. 
But he was testing Philip here. He's trying to, trying to build some faith into Philip. He said, Philip, where are we going to find some food for these people? He asked to test it. For, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But he wanted to help Philip grow. Where are we going to solve this problem, Philip? And Philip answered him. Listen to his answer. I imagine with a shrug of his shoulders. Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one of them to have a bite. That's not what Jesus asked him. He didn't ask him, where are we going to get the money? What are we going to do? How's it going to be done? He said, where are you going to send them? Now, I don't want to be too hard on Philip. Because in being too hard on him, I may be too hard on myself. But listen. Jesus was trying to tell Philip and those disciples, and he's trying to tell Buckner and the rest of us disciples in this place that the where is Jesus. Jesus is the where. What Philip brought was the answer of calculation, not faith. Philip pulled out his computer instead of his Bible. Philip, I'm the answer. I'm the answer. Bring them to me. Philip was typical of a lot of us and all of us at one time or another. He was, he was problem-oriented. Talked about this some last week. He was problem-oriented. He saw problems before he saw possibilities. And there are a lot of people who look at God through the problems instead of looking at the problems through God. Problem-oriented. Problems are real, no question about that. 15,000 hungry people, real. But so is the answer to that problem real. The answer is faith and the promises of God. I remember 1959 when I came here as pastor. I was 33 years old. I'd never pastored a church. You talk about faith, it took faith for this church to call me. And I thank God for their faith. When I got here, I ran into more discouragement. You could, it was just everywhere. People were hurt. The church had been through a traumatic experience. No fault of their own. It's been through a traumatic experience. And a lot of folks are just ready to throw up their hands and quit. Church only about nine or ten years old at the time. Young church. Had a big hole in the ground here where this building was to be built. 
A couple of men on the budget committee, about the second week I was here, after we got unpacked, took me to lunch at Luby's. And Mr. C.B. Ferguson, Mr. Louis Lawrence, took me to lunch. Now, they may be only names to you, and there are names out there on the plaque in that foyer. But they were more than names to me then, and are more than names to me now, as were a number of people, some of whom are still in this room. They said, now, Bugner, there are a lot of people in the church that want to just fill up the hole. Just fill up the hole. We can't go on. How do you feel about this? I said, well, sirs, I don't believe God called me here to pastor an empty hole. They said, neither do we. Let's move forward. And thank God for some Andrews who were in the church because the next person that shows up on the scene here is Andrew saying, I haven't gotten much, but I got a little kid here with five loaves and two fishes. Thank God for the Andrews. There are not many. They are seldom a majority, but they are the folks that make a difference. Then and now, and that wasn't the last crisis we faced. In the 33 years I've been here, I don't know when we had a year when we didn't have some crisis about something, money or property or space or parking or whatever it might be. But I don't believe God called us to worship in an empty hole, and I don't believe God called us to worship in a holding pattern. The only thing that happens to you when you go into a holding pattern is you go around in circles and finally run out of gas and crash and burn. Five loaves and two fish, what are they? They're not much until you put them in the hand of God. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to say a word to you about church because I've been a part of it for a long time and I've been very close to it for 33 years and I've noticed something that I think we need to be reminded of every now and then. We hear a lot about the bottom line this and the bottom line that and the bottom line here. Listen to me lovingly and tenderly. My friends, the bottom line at the bank and the bottom line at the business is not the same as the bottom line at church. Because when you get to the bottom line in church, you still have something to add and that something is someone, and Philip missed it, it's Jesus Christ himself. You add him, and he multiplies. The bottom line in this church is not the financial report. It's the financial report plus God. And he multiplies. Bring them to me, said Jesus. Five cents, five dollars, fifty, five hundred, five thousand, twenty cents, two dollars. You bring them to me and you watch what will happen when my spirit begins to multiply. And you move from problem-oriented to possibility-oriented. And greater things than anything you've ever seen will happen.
For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Thank God for Andrew. So what happened? Look at the composition of that crowd. First thing he did is invited Jesus. Take a look at Jesus. He invites. He invites. Look, you feel alone or destitute. You feel like God is a thousand miles from your life. I want to invite you to come to him. I don't care whether you know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, whether you know any of the Ten Commandments, whether you've ever heard the Sermon on the Mount or ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, whether you have been a Baptist or, or nothing. Make any difference. If you want help in your life, if you want a friend that sticks closer than a brother, if you want someone who will multiply love and grace and peace in your life, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. I want to invite you to come to Him. What do you have to do? You have to know the Bible. You have to quote all 66 books of the Bible. I know people who quote all 66 books of the Bible and haven't found out yet how to start living it. That's wonderful. I compliment people who know that. But you don't have to do that. To, be, to join this church. What do you have to do to join this church? Just say, I want to learn more about Jesus. That's all any of us are doing. That's all any of us are doing. Just wanting to know more about Jesus and what he wants us to be and to do. So if you want to be a part of this kind of crowd that's trying to learn more about life and more about God and more about how the two can come together in a positive, creative, redemptive way, come on. He invites. He says, bring them to me. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. And when we bring it to him, he takes it. He'll take anything we bring. He took five loaves and two fish. And he'll take anything you bring. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about problems. Oh, that too. I'm talking about deeper than that. Money's only a reflection of our attitudes, our spirit, our priorities inside. Will you bring it to him? He'll take it. He'll, and he'll bless it. He'll bless it. You know, I think the biggest problem in America today is no longer guilt. Now, there may be a good cause to dispute that to a degree. I don't believe the biggest problem in America today is guilt. I think it has been. I believe the biggest problem in America today is doubt, which is the parent of a lot of guilt. Doubt. We doubt the promises of God. We doubt ourselves. We doubt that God can do all things through Christ in strengthening us. And we doubt that there's something to live for. We doubt that there's some purpose to life. We doubt that there's any solution to these multitudinous problems that are on every hand. Doubt. And doubt gives rise to shame and shame to guilt. Surely he'll take away shame and surely he'll take away guilt, but he will resolve those doubts with the power of his living presence. He'll give self-esteem. Look at that little boy. Can, can you imagine him standing there beside Jesus, Jesus with his arm around him, Jesus patting him on the back of the head, and here this little kid sees five loaves and two fishes feed 15,000 people. What did that do for him? Well, Harold Teeter and I talked about this last Sunday, and uh, he was one of those Andrew people, too, in the life of this church for these many, many years. Harold and I were talking about this, uh, this passage of Scripture, and, and I said, you know, Harold, I believe that what that little boy did got him in some trouble at home. Because when he went home that night, his mother said, where have you been? And he told her. So I was with this, this man named Jesus, and he took that lunch you fixed this morning, you know, and he multiplied that, and he fed 15,000 people. She said, until you learn to tell the truth, you're going to bed without supper. 
Would you have believed your child saying that? And then she heard the word. But you know, he went to bed after eating food that had been given by him and blessed by God and had come back into his life as literally bread cast upon the waters of the one who is the water of life. He'll bless your life. He'll strengthen you. And he'll give you faith to meet whatever obstacle is on the horizon of your life. And then he'll kind of break you up in little pieces and use you in different places. That's what he did next. He broke it up, and then he gave it to the disciples. And when the disciples got it, they didn't have a big basket full. Oh, no, no. All they had was one twelfth of five loaves and two fish. It didn't multiply until they started giving it. That's the key. That's another Christian key. Contrary to modern economics, you don't, in the Christian economy, you don't get by saving, you get by giving. That's another bottom line. The miracle occurred not after Jesus had said what he said, even broke it up. When he put it in there, there were only one-twelfth of five loaves and two fishes. And when they read the scripture, it is in there. Study it technically. It is there without question. The multiplication took place in the distribution. And when they got through and everybody had eaten all that they wanted to eat, then they gathered up the leftovers, and then it was there that they had 12 baskets full. How many disciples were there? You know. If you don't, let me tell you. 12. 12 disciples. There were 12 baskets full. And what was Jesus saying to them? He was saying to them what he's saying to me and saying to us as a church. You take the best you can give and you bring it to me and I'll take it and I'll multiply it and I'll use it to reach out with the bread of life to the whole world and someday when you get through you're going to have a full basket full left over. So I invite you to come to him who will multiply blessings in your life and through your life to make a difference in the world. You want God to multiply his blessings? Start giving away some he's already given to. And watch the power of his spirit multiply the loaves and fishes of your own devotion.